You're listening to Ramp, the Insight Squared podcast. This is Ramp, the analytics podcast that helps you grow your software as a service business with deep data insights. I'm your host, Kara Hogan, and this week's episode is brought to you by Insight Squared's custom SaaS benchmarking report. Want to compare your company's churn rate, MRR, LTV, and more vital SaaS metrics to other companies in your industry? Visit bit.ly slash SaaS benchmarks to see the free benchmark report today. How do customers interact with your SaaS products? Karen Rubin says that if you're not tracking usage data, you're missing out on major improvements to your product. Rubin is the VP of product at Quantopian a crowdsourced hedge fund that encourages freelance quantitative analysts to develop, test, and use trading algorithms to buy and sell securities. Before joining Quantopian, Ruben was a product manager at HubSpot, as well as the entrepreneur-in-residence at Matrix Partners. She's a background in computer science and lives and breathes data every day at her job. I've spent my whole career building products, so I have learned many things. I think some of the interesting takeaways that continue to come up over and over again in my career is that I love working on teams to build products that people use. The stage of the company really matters. The stage of the product really matters. The size of the team matters. As a product manager, you're in a unique position where you have the ability to influence what people work on on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. You also have the ability to influence the strategy of the organization, but you rarely have any direct authority or management control over people. So you're, in a way, this manager without actually ever being a manager, (laughs) And so you spend your entire time working with teams and working with people to try and convince them of your ideas or encourage them to do things a certain way or make changes based on your learnings, which makes it a really interesting position because you're sort of in between everybody else, but never really a part of any one team, if that makes sense. One of the things that's been a lot of fun about my career is I work in technology. I work in software almost exclusively, but Mm -hmm. the industries I work in change dramatically. So before building marketing software at HubSpot, I worked at a web development shop down in New York and my clients were all in big media. So it was the early 2000s and everybody in media was realizing that the internet wasn't a fad (laughs) and that they needed to have websites and care about this. And so my clients were NBC and Hearst Media and really big organizations that were entrenched in an entirely different kind of technology, working on something totally different. And then I came to HubSpot where I was working in marketing. I had a brief stint in a you know health hardware company and now working at Quantopian, which is uh, completely different where I build software where quants are coding and analyzing data and analyzing market trends. And my user interacts with our interface by writing code. A completely mm. different kind of user than somebody who works you uh, uses HubSpot where they're writing content or they're uh, working on their marketing. These two individuals are totally different. And one of the fun challenges of being a product manager is getting in the head of your user and understanding who they are and what they do and how they think. Tell me a little bit more about Quantopian. How does the product work exactly? The premise behind Quantopian is we've got a platform online that allows a user to write an algorithm to invest in the market. So instead of an individual deciding when to make buys and sells, they write code that identifies a set of rules that will determine when buys and sells should be made in the market. And this is called you know, quantitative investing. So you're using algorithms to make the decisions. 
And it's not high frequency trading. It's not second level or millisecond level. It's on a broader range than that. But people come to our platform and by people, our users are a giant subset of people who understand the market a little bit, know how to code and have interesting insights. There are people that work in the world of finance, but it extends a lot of beyond that to data scientists and programmers and mechanical engineers and just people in this world of technology who are interested in the market. The interesting thing about Gohantopian is we've got a community of 45,000 people writing algorithms, collaborating on them with each other, sharing ideas and learning together. And what we're doing is we're looking at the returns of those algorithms as they're performed in back tests, which is basically a historical analysis. So it's basically looking at how the algorithm would have performed in history. And we're then picking the best performing algorithms and investing in them as a hedge fund. We're going to be in the world of finance. And by you know investing in them as a hedge fund, we have not actually started the investing yet. That's the plan for the future. How does the company monetize those algorithms? Yeah, so we're not. The entire plan is to monetize it through the hedge fund. And so we make absolutely no money now. All of our users use our software for free. They do not pay us anything. And we do not charge anybody for the use of our software, not their their businesses, not their employers, not themselves. They just use it for free. And we plan to monetize it through the hedge fund. There will be you know, sale of data because we can't provide them all of the world's data for free. At this point, we're providing them the data they need for free. But at some point, you can see us integrating with lots of third-party data sets and, and selling that. But that will not be the way we try to make revenue or monetize the system. Ruben explained that designing a product for the Quantopian customer is definitely a challenge. When your customers are data scientists, you have to be data-driven. So what's really fun about that from the perspective of being a product manager, especially someone who spent five years building software at HubSpot, is this is as close to a B2C product that I've, as I've ever worked on. You know, at HubSpot, when I left, there were 8,000 customers. And so doing things in, from a product manager's perspective that were data-driven wasn't really possible. If you wanted to A-B test something on the product, you had to wait months to get any kind of statistically significant results because we just didn't have enough user to drive that. Consumer products typically have a much easier way of being able to put something out there and then see how users respond before making a decision about what they want to do. And Quantopian, with 45,000 users in our community, we get to do a lot more of that than I've ever done before. It also changes your relationship with your user when they're not paying for your software. And it once again changes it when you're potentially going to be paying them. And so there's a lot of interesting dynamics there that make it really different than building marketing software or building content software for the media industry. The other challenge for Quantopian is security and privacy. The algorithms created by the quants are incredibly valuable, adding another layer of complexity to the product. The algorithms that people are writing, that's really protected IP. You never want anyone else to see your algorithm if you're a quant or a user of Quantopian. So we have these security levels to make sure that nobody else sees what they're doing that make for just interesting product challenges. But it also means you've got a community of people built around sharing. And the thing that they are building, they don't want to share. 
Right. Hmm. So like in building the community in the early days, there was part of changing an industry and changing the way things were done in the world of finance by opening up and making it something that everybody had access to. And we do have just a thriving and dynamic community where there are forum threads every single day with, you know, tens and tens of posts of people talking back and forth about different academic papers, different statistical approaches to solving problems, and just really diving into the how of what they're doing as opposed to the specifics of their algorithm. Now, with that said, people regularly will write algorithms and share those as well because they share it to prove a point or they share it because they're working on some kind of idea that's not deep-seated IP or because it doesn't work and they want to talk about it with the community why an idea didn't work. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of sharing that happens there, but it is an industry where sharing is not done very often. And so giving people a forum where they can talk about the stuff and learn from each other has been really a change to the space. It has taken Quantopian a lot of work to earn the trust of our community to say, put your code in our system, Mm. run it on our back testing software and trust us that we're not going to look at it. And now that we've announced we're going to be a hedge fund, that is something we're constantly having to work on with the community and explain again to them and, and earn their trust through our actions. You know, ultimately, if we if we were to be, you know, a bad agent and do something like look at someone's IP, there would be no end game for Quantopian. There would be no business model. Our entire business is structured on the idea that people trust us and are willing to trust us with their code and that we won't look at it. And so we have to constantly, you know, make sure that we're always being really honest and truthful and that there's good stuff in that. Data is obviously central to every aspect of Quantopian's product. Ruben said that data quality and data analysis tools specifically are central to their success. Data is really a big part of what we do, and data consistency and making sure that it's accurate is always something we have to worry about. Mm-hmm. So the first tool that we built is our backtester. And what a backtester allows you to do is write your algorithm and then test it against historical pricing data. So we have a data set that's 12 years of minutely pricing data on the market, the U.S. equities market. And so what it does is it goes back 12 years in time. And for every stock that's ever traded on the market, it knows what the price was any minute, how much volume was traded in that minute. And then we also understand at a daily level what the open, the high, the low of the stock prices were and the volume. And so this is just massive amounts of data that on Yahoo or Google, you can get this at the daily level for free, but being able to get it at the minutely level so you're understanding what's happening within a day on the market historically, it's very expensive data. And so we've purchased that data set and we've built a back tester that we've open sourced called Zipline. The actual back tester is open source, so people could use that with their own data wherever they want on their own system. But if they want to use it with the data that we've purchased and we're keeping updated and continuing to add to, they use Quantopian. And when you talk about kind of data consistency and data challenges, uh, one of the interesting ones is the the quality of this data. And there's a lot of interesting things when you think about stock data and the quality, things like making sure dividends are taken into account correctly and splits, which happen in the stock market and change to the price of stock and how are those reflected within your pricing data. And in data sets that you buy, this is something that's talked about all of the time. And so we're always having to manage that and understand it. When companies do kind of crazy things like change their ticker symbol, making Mm -hmm. sure that your data accurately reflects that information. When When a company goes off the market, making sure that your data set takes care of that situation correctly. The other tool that we have now, which we just launched to our entire community about five weeks ago, is a research platform. 
So before you write an algorithm and start backtesting it against historical data, you want to research ideas. And the research platform gives you open access to the data so you can analyze it and do whatever you want with it. And what the interesting thing is, while we've done this, so we've opened it up so people can analyze the data and look at it, our community's finding a lot of you know, issues with our data. The price of this stock was $12 in this minute, then it went to one cent in this minute, and then when it went back to $12 in this minute. It's coming to us from our data vendor. And these are standard problems in pricing data and in equity data. And we have to be on top of helping to deal with them and helping to find them. And since we launched a new tool, people are finding even more of them. So it's something that we're always working on making high quality and cleaning and keeping to be something that our users trust and want to use because that is it is core to what we're doing. We've talked a lot about the data your users care about, but what metrics do you look at as part of the product development process? I think it's really cool and buzzwordy to say that we're a very data-driven organization, but I was about to say we're a very data-driven organization. Um, myself and the two other product managers here, we all come from HubSpot. So um, we were all, we were the first three product managers at HubSpot. And HubSpot basically lived in a world where if you couldn't prove it with data, people wouldn't believe you. Mm -hmm. So everything you did, you had to have data to back it up. And we've come out of that culture. And so as we work as product managers, we are constantly evaluating the data of what our users are doing and how they're using our product and analyzing that. So just the other day, this new product I mentioned, the research platform that we released, five weeks ago, it went to all users. And what I pulled yesterday was the funnel of how a new user comes to that product and gets through the different actions that I want them to do for a brand new user as compared to someone who's already used Quantopian before and knows what we do. From that, we were able to learn that we had a significant drop-off rate for new users that weren't familiar with what we did and could not make the leap to understand what this new platform was for. And so I've spent the last couple of days coming up with the changes that we're going to make to help a new user better start using that product because we were able to, through data, see that there was a problem here. So we're changing kind of when a user clicks the button to go into this product for the very first time, what they see if they're brand new is going to be different so that we help them understand what the product is doing. And hopefully more of them will then take that second click. It's actually, you know, it sounds like marketing. It is product marketing at its best of trying to help a user into the funnel and, and through your product to the point where they get engaged and keep clicking then on their own. Right, right. So it's all, it's all about kind of the usage metrics. Exactly. So there's a lot of usage metrics that I look at. A lot of usage metrics that I do as a product manager. I actually, interestingly, have started moved from doing all my data analysis in Excel to doing it in Python using an IPython notebook. It's been a lot of fun for me because yeah. one of the interesting challenges I mentioned of being a consumer company is we have all these users and every user has you know umpteen data points associated with them. And I was blowing out of my Excel notebooks. I, I work mm. on a Mac. Excel on a Mac has limitations, as we yes. all know. And I was getting too many rows and columns in my Excel notebook, and it was crashing and getting too slow. And so I jokingly say that I had to, I had to go move to big kid data analysis and get a, a tool that I could use that would allow me to analyze quickly large amounts of data without slowing down. And so I was looking every single day as we're rolling out this new tool, I wanted to understand how people were using it and what they were doing. And it was taking me 45 minutes to an hour to run my reports every day. 
And that was just not sustainable. And so I had to kind of upgrade my, my data chops to go to something that in just a few minutes I can run reports, gather data from multiple databases, pull it together and have it analyzed in the way that I wanted to be analyzed in. It was really fun. <laughs> That's the words of a true data nerd right there. <laughs> I am a nerd all the way. <laughs> the other interesting angle that you guys have is that you have used your data to do research. Specifically, the study that you did on gender and investments in businesses led by women, which got a ton of attention. Why did you decide to conduct that research in the first place? So as a product manager, I need to understand what my users do. I mean, that was the core reason. I have never worked as a quant before. I have never built for quants before. And I needed to understand what a quant was doing. And so I needed to use our tools. And in order to do that, I need to write an investment strategy. A couple of months after I started here, I had not successfully written an investment strategy. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at all these strategies that had to do with, you know, the moving, the weighted moving average of the stock price over an X day period. And I was just not getting it. And so I decided I needed to look at something that I was actually interested in. And at the same time, the Credit Suisse Gender 3000 report came out, which took a look at gender in the workplace and all of these different things. And I wondered, you know, what happened? What would happen if you invested in women? What would Mm -hmm. that look like? And uh, it started a month long project to answer that question, which was fascinating and it involved me trying to find the data, figuring out what the right strategy would be, teaching myself Python, getting into our platform and starting to write code and write a new new strategy, and then ultimately finding something that had really interesting results. And so what I did was I, I wrote a strategy that invested in the female CEOs of the Fortune 1000 over the last 12 years. So every time a company in the Fortune 1000 hired a female CEO, I, my simulation, bought that company's stock. And every time a female CEO left a company in the Fortune 1000, I sold. So all I did was hold the stock while they had a female CEO in the position. And over the course of running that for 12 years, so from 2002 to 2014, my strategy uh, outperformed the S&P 500 by 200%. Wow. So that's pretty exciting when you're a quant and you get to see those kinds of returns. Right. Um, Sounds great. And that was something that I, I shared with our community, my strategy, the whole thing, all of the details and the data. And that did get uh, quite a bit of press and some attention from other people because obviously those returns are pretty exciting. Right. It was really fun because Melinda Gates retweeted it. Right. <laughs> and I got to tell you, she is a power Twitter user because that got hundreds and hundreds of retweet and really helped just spread the study just far and wide. It's also, you know, a hot button issue, which is fun. right. Right. You have to be really careful because, you know, causation and correlation become really questionable here. Right. And so I, I shared my study and I was very, very careful in the note. I wrote a, a basically a notebook, which is a Python tool to analyze all this information and then share my thoughts along it. And I had to be really careful with what you say and how you say it, because we are talking about data here and I'm publishing something to a world of quants who analyze data for their professions in ways that I don't. I don't know why the returns of the study were as good as they were. I obviously have my seeking suspicions, but when talking with data people, you have to be really careful about whether or not the results you're saying that or if they're just correlated. Right. Um, and that was something that through the publishing of all of this, I had to be really, really careful about what I said so that I didn't get attacked for saying the wrong thing. How is the role of data changing in business and for product managers? 
How do you see that continuing to change in the future? I'm so entrenched in this, it's hard for me to step outside myself. But my personal belief is that we will all be using more and more data in, mm-hmm. uh, in our jobs across the, the business sphere, especially in startups, especially in software. And I think that that marketers, that product managers, and anybody who works in the world of software needs to figure out how to leverage the data and use the tools to leverage it the most effectively. So for me, that was taking the leap from Excel into Python in order to do my data analysis. That's not the only leap that needs to be made. It was an easy one for me because I was already working in Python for my job and I have a degree in computer science. And I think that there's an important reality that as businesses grow and as data becomes more prevalent in our society, we're all going to have to work more with data. And it's important to not let yourself be held back by the tools that you're using. Now it's time for Risky Business, where we ask our guests to share a story of the most dangerous thing they've ever done. And I will tell you, I am not a particularly risky person. <laughs> I, uh, I get my risk in life through working at startups because, like I said, we don't make any money yet. And right. we need to try and make that happen. Another thing that I thought of was at the age of nine, my parents took me up to hike Mount Katahdin in Maine. Oh, wow. That's cool. Which was a really uh, big thing because there are parts of Mount Katahdin. Mount Katahdin is a double peak mountain that has a knife edge ridge connecting it. And it's called the knife edge because there are parts of it which are, you know, a couple feet wide with straight drop-offs. And my mom claims that I, I scampered across it without any thoughts for my own safety or falling off it. And she cried the entire way across it because she thought it was terrifying to watch her two daughters climb. That might be the most dangerous thing I did. And I did it before I even realized what danger was. Right. Kids are so fearless. They're just like, yeah, why wouldn't I do that? (laughs) And now I'll have to think about that before I do it with my own daughter. I know. Yeah. Mount Katahdin's beautiful though. I've been up there. It's a great, I, I have done it twice and I will definitely take her up there. Maybe when she's nine. If you'd like to learn more about Karen Rubin or her really interesting company, you can visit quantopian.com. That's Q-U-A-N-T-O-P-I-A-N.com. And now for some listener mail. I got a lovely email recently from Aylin, who wrote, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I worked in content marketing for years before taking a job as a customer success marketing manager, where I had no idea what I was doing. I listened to a lot of Kara's interviews and learned a lot about using analytics for SaaS customer retention and more. It quickly got me up to speed on my new job, as well as gave me a whole new view on SaaS that I hadn't gotten when I was strictly on the creative side. Thank you so much for writing in, Aylin. It's amazing to hear that I helped you succeed in your new role at a SaaS company and really motivates me to keep working hard on this podcast. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Come back in a few weeks for more data-driven insights.